Hello and welcome back to the Ad Race podcast. It's Fiona Douglas and today will be an in-conversation episode. For this series, we'll be focusing on trailblazers and inspirational figures. They'll be letting us into their lives and highlighting some key pieces of work along the way. Today, I'm joined by Rani Patel, Director of Collaborations at Youth Marketing Agency, Liberty. She's an industry voice with 13 plus years experience. She's led partnerships with Adidas London, championing female viability, and worked on the groundbreaking campaign for breast cancer charity, Copperfield, which showed the first naked breast on daytime TV. Rani runs her own brand and creative platform, Fangirl, inspired by black club culture, and co-founded Brand Share The Mic, an initiative aimed to drive better equity for black content creators on mainstream brand platforms. So, Rani, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Faye. <laughs> Brilliant. So, first, congrats on the new podcast. I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. So, I think the first thing that I wanted to hear about is your route into advertising. Yeah, so how you first got started. Yeah, so my route into advertising was quite intentional. Um, because I was studying business at GCSE and A-level. I went to an all-girls grammar school, which was in a white area, and um, I was studying business and I was studying art, and I loved both of them. But I didn't... I was quite realistic. I'm quite a pragmatic person. I keep it real. I realised that maybe my art wasn't going to make me a full-time career. Um, so I was like, how can I merge art and commerce? And then in my um, art class, my teacher invited her son, who was actually part of a uh, creative duo and ad agency. They talked about art and copy, being copywriters and art directors, what that meant, what they do working with brands. And then I kind of just was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. So I went on to study business and marketing I'm really focused around brands and really cared about that. But I didn't actually know what advertising was. I didn't understand that there's creative agencies and there's media agencies and there's all these different types of marketing that sits amongst that. There's PR agencies as well. Um, So I kind of got a job offer at Channel 5 and I just thought, okay, this must be advertising. But what it was was really working in the media space of selling that airtime to some of the biggest brands through their media agencies. And... um, it wasn't for me, let's say, because it was pretty brutal. And did, it's, you, did you see yourself more on the creative side of yeah. things as opposed to... So I, was like, so I was like, this is great, like, selling this really expensive airtime, but um, I'm just seeing the ad go out. Like, I wasn't part of this process. Like, I might think the ad is cool, but I want to be the person that's, like, helping shape it. So then I realised that I was doing more media and in terms of the process, maybe towards the end of the process, and I wanted to be at the front, which was at a creative agency where ideas are incepted and the strategies and all of the executional elements are kind of brought to life. So then I kept applying because I didn't have much experience. And I imagine back then, now I look back, there was probably a lot of bias in how I was being reviewed in my interview process um, or even just my CV, Rani Patel. Uh, doesn't give you white middle class boy from a boarding school but I finally got a role someone took a chance on me and uh, that was at Iris which is uh, a creative agency which I'm sure everyone's familiar with and then I've just kind of found my way in the right space in terms of marketing and advertising which I think I've now arrived at (laughs) a few years in so you've worked at some of the, the biggest creative agencies and 
um, delivered some really huge projects. So I know one of those that I just mentioned was Copperfield, yeah. um, for Copperfield. Can you just tell me about how that came yeah. about and how it was working on such yeah. a... So pre- previous to that, I'd actually been working at these big ad agencies that the brands were that I was working with were, were tech, like big tech companies like Nokia, Samsung, and, um, and booze brands. I'd been working a lot of booze brands like Diageo, I'd done the Guinness, and Carlsberg, and Pernod Ricard. And when you look at all of them, they're really like um, male-dominated spaces because they're aimed at selling to men. ABC One Men, and then this brief came into the agency, which was really to work for Copperfield's a pro bono agency, um, focusing on the issue around breast cancer within the youth, and it was me and two other women that got to work on it, and we're investing our time in and around the other paid work, and there was no budget, and um, we came up with a, a great idea which was showing the parallels between what you trust your hand, it's called Trust Your Touch, the campaign, to do every single day, like drive a car or squeeze something or hold something, turn something without thinking or looking, and showing the parallels of how you can do that to checking and touching your chest, um, however you identify as female, male, or non-binary. And uh, I think what was really interesting I hadn't realised is that a full naked breast hadn't been shown on daytime TV, but one of the things you have to check isn't just like the tissue around your breast and to the side and up, up along your kind of collarbone. It's actually your nipple. There's a lot of um, symptoms that arise in the nipple, whether it changes colour, shape, and sometimes it has discharge. So there's an element in the, the film where we want to show people tweaking and touching their nipple. And it was only in edit did we realise it made sense to show that. But I didn't realise it hadn't been done on daytime TV, so I worked, worked with Clearcast to actually prove to them why it needs to be done and the confidence that it would give the viewer. And it went viral, and it was, like, picked up by all the main publications from the BBC to Vogue to, obviously, Campaign. But um, it was the first full naked breast on daytime TV in 2017. And to think about that, it seems crazy that we'd gone that long in terms of representing women and other body parts in that way and how different was working on that campaign so that was uh, Copperfield's Trust Your Touch by Fold7 how different was it working on that to the other projects you were working on at that time so I guess what was really interesting is um, the ad industry is very male dominated middle class and white so no one else really in that in that room understood what it was like to be a female and to have um, to have breasts. I think it was then kind of, there was a level of autonomy given to us because it was kind of space they didn't know versus the other briefs that might have been tech or booze or finance. It was very much like, well, <clears throat> we're the bigger voices, we're the dominant voices um, because we know this. And I guess what it showed to me was that collaboration can come from anywhere and actually because we were kind of left to our own, the way that we collaborated, the way that we worked and the fact that we were able to bring some lived experiences to that project was so nice and so refreshing and to just kind of be left away from that dominant culture of like, we know what's best, this is how we must do it, here's the formula. 
And generally, how did you find working at the variety of different agencies that you, you worked in when you, I guess, were first starting out? Mm. Like, how did you find the culture? Does it actually feel so male-dominated? Does it feel mm. like there was, like, a real lack of people of colour, like, yeah. around? A hundred percent. So... I um I went to so like I mentioned I went to an all girls school in a white area and I thought because it was a white area that's why there was less of me and that's why there was racism, so I made an active choice to go to university in London because I was originally from London, go to university in London of which I went to in Kingston and it was close proximity to South London so actually it was a diverse mix of Asian, Middle East and Black, lots of different people were in my class and I felt way more at home and felt like seen and represented. Then I did that because I thought I want to have a career in advertising in London's where it's at and coming from London I'd only ever seen lots of different people so then to go to work in London and be the only person of colour on the floor was very confusing because I was like you you lot don't represent the London that I know and that I'm from and and then it dawned on me that how um, racist classist uh, advertising is how it's grown based on nepotism so the people that stay there recruit the people that are like them and and the cycle continues and actually I was one of very few and um, I didn't see any black or brown people and I didn't see any black or brown fee- women at any level let alone my level at sen- senior level and I think it dawned on me that I really didn't enjoy my time at the beginning in the industry at those sort of um, old school, old boy agencies. And a lot of the time I'd go home crying, thinking, I can't do this, I've got to find a new route. This is, this is like, beyond what I can tackle because the day-to-day, like, misogyny, misogynoir, the microaggressions. Um, but then I realised that if I don't stay and I'm not visible, then how will the younger version of me, the next generation of me, girl, boy, non-binary be able to enter this space and how will the change happen um so that's that's kind of why i've stayed but it's really not been the the most enjoyable time if i'm honest (laughs) consistently anyway but there's been some good points i guess i want to just hear a bit more about how you went about changing um changing your up your environment like moving from agency to agency did you how did you decide where you wanted to go next? Yeah. So I think it's really easy when you start out in Adworld to be really obsessed with these labels. That's just what the industry loves to do. It loves to segment, give you labels. It's, it's, a, it's a very, like, patriarchal way. It's very hierarchical. It's like, okay, you start out as an exec, you want to leave because you want to become a, ma- a manager, maybe yeah. there's no room to move up, and then you want to move from manager to director level and a partner level, da 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 And... Um, I guess my, I looking back now, I stopped looking at that and I actually really started to think about what is the work that I really enjoy doing. And I think at first, because you can get caught up in this culture in ad world, which is about the big budget, big dick swinging accounts that are doing the big, and, and, but they're horrible, they're brutal actually. And you get that clap on the back when you might have launched that car ad or whatever it is, but... The process to get to that is brutal, and is it fulfilling? Probably not. So I was like, I actually really want to work on stuff I care about. Copperfield highlighted that I care about youth culture, I care about social impact, I really care about women and other people that are being marginalised in this world. So I went into a route of working on beauty for a bit, and um, female-led 
categories like fashion, um, periods, all of these different areas I kind of looked at and worked on. And that's what's helped navigate is that any kind of work I can do that drives a bit of impact and change in culture and within society, that's what motivates me. And all the labels and everything in between, that will work itself out. Would you advise people who are coming up at the moment to, to do the same, to really think about yeah. their passions as opposed to the yeah. job title? Yeah, definitely. I mean, unless you're a cold-blooded person, you're not going to be able to look yourself in the mirror going to do something that isn't giving you joy. When I say giving you joy, it's a thing that isn't compromising you as well as a human being. And I was really having to perform to exist in some of those rooms where you're on the big dick accounts and you're you're saying, oh, we've got so-and-so in the ad, driving or drinking, whatever. It's kind of like, I just wanted to be true to myself because you spend so much of your time at work. And I, that is my advice to anyone, I think, whatever background you're from. So, I know that now you work at Liberty. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a bit about what you, your job, your job title and what you do for them? So, for those who don't know, Liberty has been around for about 20 years. And I guess the way that we talk about ourselves is we're a youth marketing and purpose agency. So, we really focus on bringing young people into the process, driving impact and social change around some of the biggest global issues like childhood obesity, mental health, um, representation, inclusivity. And my role, so my title is Director of Cultural Collaborations, and, and I've shifted my role from being business partner, um, which is what I was doing throughout uh, 2020 and the beginning of 2021, to really specifically work hand-in-hand -hand with the brand in identifying the cultures and the communities that they want to impact and how they want to collaborate with them authentically without taking away from those cultures, so in order to allow them to continue to thrive safeguarding those communities so I work kind of in the interface between the two safeguarding those communities um, that are, be, are collaborating with the brands and uh, also safeguarding the brand ensuring that the brand is doing what makes sense for them authentic, authentically but equally making sure that like reparations are there for the cultures and the communities that they are working with etc so it's a, it's a broad role, but it's a very necessary role, in my opinion. Obviously, I'm going to say that. <laughs> I do it. But I think the more and more we look at marketing, outside of just Liberty, but I'm noticing a lot of mainstream ad agencies now seem to give a shit about culture and communities because they realise that it's not just the work, upper working class and um, upper middle class and upper class white men that are going to be buying their products and engaging with them. So, yeah. So, what would you say are some of the most kind of important things or, like, the building blocks for a brand to partake in a really authentic yeah. um, collaboration or authentic campaign that's reaching out to diverse communities? So, I think the first thing is probably values and purpose, like, really... As a brand, uh, what are your values and what is your what is your purpose beyond selling some stuff or providing a service? I think the second thing is once you've established that and identified what you care about and what you want to drive purpose around is having skin in the game. So not just doing it because you think it's a trend, not like working with black people or LGBTQ plus communities because it's a trend, but because you want to drive 
meaningful impact and change and support them beyond just like Pride or Black History Month. And then I think uh, the other thing is look at everything that you're doing with these communities, look at it that what you're adding and not taking away. Um, so when we talk about safeguarding, and I talk about it a lot in my role, it's about um, a test for safeguarding to ensure a cultural community has been safeguarded. So after that collaboration or that activation or interaction between the brand and those communities has happened, to measure is that culture and community thriving? Does it still exist? If things have changed in that culture and community because of that um, brand, negatively if it's changed, then you haven't you haven't been safeguarding it, which means you've taken something away from that culture and community and you haven't added. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, I think we see a lot of these uh, brands that aren't adding to the culture called out on the, on pages like Diet Prada yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I guess it's working with you. This is yeah. how brands don't end up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's my <laughs> job is to there. be across and actually observing how culture's shifting, how the conversation is shifting, what people feel in culture is acceptable from brands, what isn't. Looking at lots of case studies like you don't want to be the brand that did this. Look at Diet Prada, they're calling out X brand. So that's... That's part of my role as well. Do you think it's important for these campaigns to have people of colour or, I guess, it's depending on um, what the campaign is focusing on, like LGBTQ plus people, like behind the scenes as well, working um, as the director or the photographer and kind of working in different spaces on, on these campaigns in particular? Yeah, so I think just generally, whatever the campaign is, I think there's evidence that when um, there is a diverse group of people, you get to a much more interesting and innovative space, especially when it's looking at, like, not just creative ideas, solutions, programs, whatever they are. So for me, it's really important that the team that I work with are diverse, and this isn't just by the skin colour. This is about where where they come from, where they live, the language that they speak, all of these different things, the lifestyle that they lead. I think when you get into specific areas and cultures, like if you are doing something for Black History Month, I think it's really important to ensure that the lens on it comes from a group of black people. And I say a group of black people, as many black people as you can have behind it is really important. Because that one black person that you might have in the writing room with you actually isn't representative of the black community. You need to look at a spectrum of black experiences to have the right lens on then telling a series or one black story, even that. So I think, um, and, and that applies to anything, if you're looking at something that's focused around disabilities, I think it's important to show um, behind the scenes to have the input from people that are from different disabilities, not just that particular disability that you're focusing on if that is the case. And I know that whilst being at Liberty, you co-founded Brandshare, the mic, so that's one space that brands can really lend their lend their voice or to yeah. other communities. Kind of how, how did you go about um, developing that? How did that come about? So... Uh, me and the other two co-founders, we were inspired by Lovey Ajaya Jones's um, Share the Mic Now, which she had done shortly after George Floyd's death, which was handing, getting um, a bunch of white female influencers to hand over their mic to black influential women to share their experiences, to handing over their platform. And I think pla- platforming is a really important thing uh, just for today for people to be doing and for brands to be doing. 
so we were like, well, wouldn't it be cool if brands, mainstream brands like Google, Sony Music, KFC, etc., handed over their platform to young black content creators who are creating in these spaces in the same sectors you know they're talking about chicken fried chicken or they're making fried chicken at home or they're talking about tech or innovation or music but they just don't have the platform so handing that over so that they could be heard and that's really giving them the first sort of leg up in their career or starting point for their career to help accelerate that and be a catalyst for for their voices yeah so you've had a couple of rounds of this. Is this going to be six, I think, seven? Um, because it launched in July 2020, throughout that year, and then um, and then it went on to 2021. We did three three more, I think, 2021. What is the next step for it? That's your question. Yeah. I mean, it's a very simple mechanic, and it's working. It's driven some impact it's reached over 5 million we've amplified over 60 uh, black voices over 60 mainstream brands I mean for me it's then uh, the long term can we get longer term commitments can we work with brands to and some brands have done that I've been fortunate that the first person to sign up was Rankin he really supported the idea and that helped because it attracted more brands and he he's actually gone on to work with a lot of these black photographers that we've matched his team with long term and that's what the stories that I love to hear so for me it's like working out how do we do this sustainably as well yeah yeah I guess like starting a ripple and it turning yeah. into a wave like yeah. people continue to work with these creators and, yeah. it, and it just generates bigger relationships yeah. and they meet more people and carry on so I know you have another passion project as well fangirl yeah. um, so yeah. Yeah, how did how did that all start? So I think all my projects come out of a place of like a lived experience and an empathy for being marginalised myself. And Fangirl came at a time where maybe my mental health was um, quite challenged and I was struggling to express myself. But then when I took a step back and I, and I think a lot of it was like around my career and feeling oppressed and feeling like I wasn't visible because I was in these white dominated spaces. Um, and I think for me the main core at Fangirl is driving visibility and self-expression because I understand that a lot of communities across the world their expression is stifled so it starts with that and it starts with black club culture which is a safe space it has been a safe space for black communities we go there we get to dance we get to listen to our music dance the way we want to dance dress the way we want to dress talk the way we want to talk and afterwards go eat the food we want to eat and um so for me it was like how do I bring that joy in a product how do I bring that lived experience in a product how do I tell more of those black stories those intersecting stories about being black female and plus size or being black and non-binary or being from the LGBT community and have a passion of, to model and dance but wanting to be visible all of these things and that's what it's that's what it's become yeah so because I follow you so closely I was it was really interesting to see how fangirl evolved this is probably all already in your mind but <laughs> I was witnessing it evolve from um like a brand with a product line to how actually that can turn into more of a brand that's kind of culture-led and how that can interact in other other spaces yeah. and with other brands. Yeah. So I know you worked with Clark's Originals yeah. um, and 
on um, the campaign In Her Shoes. Yeah. So can you tell us about that campaign? Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I mean, two is better than the power of one. Clark's is a big brand I really have loved and enjoyed it a lot of people didn't realize but it has a lot of a story it has a, a long storied history within the Afro-Caribbean community in particular the Caribbean community and it was seen as the shoe the classic the good shoe that all Caribbeans wear in particular Jamaicans there's 150 Jamaican dancehall songs that talk about Clark's and how it's the preferred shoe and being a black brand, I really wanted to amplify black women for International Women's Month because in response to what had happened with Black Lives Matter in 2020, it really highlighted how marginalised black women are. And Women's Month or International Women's Month tends to be this, like, whitewash feminism, in my opinion. And there are so many black women that aren't being haven't been given their flowers for how much they've been driving culture so when we look in dance spaces it's normally been led by black women when we look at makeup it's been led by black women when we look at fashion it's been led by the trends hair all of these things so um i wanted to amplify five black women uh, that were pushing culture forward through whether it was music dance makeup fashion um to really celebrate what they're about and clark's loved the idea they wanted to partner um, they have because they have this storied history in culture within the black community. They know that they it's important for them to talk to this and to be their platforming and celebrating these conversations and these women. So that was a great a great moment. And yeah, I guess it just shows how a community that starts off quite small and niche can actually work with some of the mainstream brands like Clark's. And I know you have a really beautiful series of films. It's yeah. it's really quite moving when you hear the, the stories from yeah. these women. Like, how was that process for you? So that process was, I guess it was something I'd thought about for a long time, but I'd never put pen to paper. Then I kind of talked to Clarks about it and I had, like, a top-line pitch. And they were into it, and then I was like, okay. And first it was meant to just be some T-shirt collabs, by the way. It wasn't meant to be these content films, and then it became these films to tell the stories around the messaging and the women that represented that. And I wrote all of the the treatments um, and directed it and pulled together a team and interviewed the women, and that was a very um, intense process, but there was so much love and passion that, um, yeah, from art directing it to, like, then getting our set designer commission, like, everything to, like to overseeing the design um, and essentially, like, getting to the output of those five films was, like, so incredible and so rewarding. But, again, it was another project where we needed, which we had, uh, a spectrum of black people behind it, not just women as well, men and women. Also, I think, for me, what was really empowering about that campaign was that having worked in advertising for about 13 years at this point... I hadn't seen a campaign that really focused and prioritised black women and told, like, the, the the beautiful, intricate stories about black women and really unpacked them and showed, and showed them in such... as a spectrum and um, in, in so many different ways because we usually are used to seeing in media and advertising black women as this monolith and they're either, like, poor, untidy or angry... Like they tend to be this character and I was able to kind of show that and that was really 
empowering for me because in my like I said in my time I hadn't seen that and I hadn't been part of that in the industry I feel like what I'd seen about is campaigns that would try and make sure they included one black woman mm-hmm. in them and so that's it's always palatable as well wouldn't she well this is why your campaign was so striking is because it was all black women it's yeah. not, not just like oh yeah we've made sure to tick these boxes from all these different all the shades all the hair yeah. textures all the shapes yeah it's actually you know like the not talking bad about it but like the dove adverts yeah. and stuff like that they were like make they want to make sure have a bit of everything or like united colors of benetton yeah yeah yeah, style, yeah, yeah. you know but it's, it's always black. that one it's version of that black woman or that black man and like we've all seen him and we all kind of all the black people roll their eyes when they see him in their ads well, I think this is typecast. <laughs> but I think what's nice is that when you have, like, several black women, then you can... It helps to show other people who aren't black women, you know, the fact that there's so many different types of black women. Mm. There's no, like, one archetypal, like, job or personality or background. And you only get that if you fill the whole space. yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so true. It's so true. It's so, so true. So what campaigns do you think, like, in recent years, really helped to to pave the way for better representation? So I think, for me, which really changed the game was um, not just a campaign, but I think, like, a product offering, was when Rihanna launched Fenty Beauty. Because for me, that was, like inclusivity on so many levels and it was just like you know chef's kiss because it was like she as a black woman launched an inclusive um, makeup range because it was makeup at the time which highlighted the spectrum of shades but not just for black and brown people actually for like the whitest white the most poor women that hadn't been able to find their shade and um the way that the product also is designed, a lot of the shades of the lip gloss is to work on on the spectrum of those shades. So you've got like, the, there's a universal lip gloss that can is for every skin tone. And she had actually taken the time to test it on different types of melanin. Um, right through to like who was in the campaigns and how you experience the product on websites. So you see it on like the whitest white, the darkest dark, the lightest, you know, the mid-tones, all of this. And for me, that was just revolutionary. It was so simple, but it was actually revolutionary. And that's what actually changed the game in for makeup. Because then we saw a lot of brands then thinking, okay, we need to up the ante because they, they realised that there was a whole group of people um, being marginalised and weren't able to get the right products. Um, but also it made other categories around that look and think okay this is what inclusive marketing must be about we need to sort our shit out i remember when it came out as well like quite a lot of the time you'd see things and it was like just available in america or something Mm. like that but actually being able to get it in the uk and And just in harvey (laughs) nicks and that cute every day no and and one of the first models that she actually used was uh leomi anderson Mm. who's obviously like black british so it kind of really resonated like something that was in on home soil as well um so what do you think about kind of fenty and how it's evolved you still support it as a brand. Yeah, I'm still waiting. Do you know what? I'm waiting for my Fenty order to get dis- delivered. I said it was dispatched, but I had a delivery 
receipt and I'm a bit anxious because I'm going out this weekend. <laughs> but like on a on a real note, I love Fenty. I use Fenty. Um, as a brand in terms of where she expands it into beauty, I love that because it made sense. I think what I also love is that it's not actually, even though that is clearly her priority audience, female, it's actually for, um, the makeup is definitely for like men and non-binary. And she's just, by default, she's just made that accessible because Rihanna, the brand is like, you know, she, she kind of goes across like attracting women all the way through to the LGBTQ community. So I love how she's evolved it. I mean, I love all the other bits of Fenty. So Fenty Savage. Um, now she's pregnant. I'm waiting for Fenty Baby. <laughs> I mean, I think it's too, it's too great. I think it's phenomenal that she is a woman of colour. Is like She's a billionaire now or something. What got announced? That she's like this... Yeah, she was like a billionaire. I think it was like last year. She's doing amazing things in terms of representing what you can be as well. How do you think that the other makeup brands reacted? Because I know, if you think of it, even at, at that time, you had some of the um, more expensive makeup brands, you know, mm. like like Mac and Bobby Brown were already doing like mm. a wide shade range. Mm. It was more those um, cheaper brands that had to react, like mm. Ramel, L'Oreal, you know, the ones mm-hmm. that you can't even try on in the store. <laughs> do you think that... We've seen enough change from from those kind of brands. Do you no. do you pay attention to them now? Like, do you feel like they're for, they're advertising to you or they're for you? No, I think what it did is it, it lowered the barriers to entry for new emerging brands to come in and and take up space at that lower price point and offer like a range and kind of serve um, a spectrum of people from different backgrounds. I think those kind of like let's say. Um, established high street ones because they may be bigger they haven't been able to quick be quick in innovating i think they're doing their thing but um i think what we've probably found in makeup generally especially for women in color they're willing to step up as in go up a price level and buy a fenty at that price point for the guaranteed like you know it's going to be right for my skin it's going to be my shade it's going to look good on me so yeah, I don't know what to say about them. <laughs> yeah, it just makes me... I guess I know that when I was much younger, like at like high school and girls were wearing makeup, I wasn't because... Yeah. Not because I wasn't interested in makeup like I was, but the ones that were at the price point, it wasn't catering to me. So yeah, I think that's the, the thing, really, is that if you're old enough, you're... And have enough like money, you're gonna just get go to yeah. Fenty or these other brands that are at that similar price point and have the wide shade range. Yeah. But it's really like that is younger people point. that will feel, yeah. feel, feel left out. Well, then I think that's what happens, doesn't it? Like I never like when I was younger, I didn't buy that much makeup because I didn't they didn't offer it in my uh, to suit my skin tone, and that kind of limits your self expression, I guess. And I guess if you don't. Um, if you come from a background where you can't afford, you know, Fenty or Bobby Brown, then, yeah, what what responsibility do these... But do you know what? I think there's some very cool um, high street brands like... Is it Revolut? Revolution. Revolution and yeah. Nix. 
Yeah. They all do a very good off shade offering on like from lip glosses to cheek yeah. creams, powders, whatever they are. So I think there are some out there, but I think they've been the innovation acceleration has been because of probably seeing something like a Fenty as well. And in recent weeks we've obviously had the Vogue February cover, mm. which that I guess that's um was a real pivotal moment because it was the first time that a cover shoot like that for Vogue had been of mm. all black women. Um, all African women. African, yeah. Nine African models. Yeah. What did you like it? Obviously, there's been a bit of a, a debate that's been yeah, going over on. Yeah, like, parties, over yeah. the Instagram. I mean, what do I think of it? I think I what I like to do is remind myself of how far we have come. <laughs> how sad is that? But when I started my career in 20, 2008, um, there was no... African women on a Vogue cover, let alone when I was a teenager and used to love reading Vogue because I was so into fashion and would read my mum's Vogue. And I used to read this magazine called Black Beauty. So then, yeah, when I, <laughs> yeah and I went, when I went to buy the cover, when it came out, I went and bought the Vogue cover and then I crossed the road to the hair shop and I went and picked up a Black Beauty. It was really interesting because for me it was like the Vogue magazine I used to read back in the day that would have like a white model on it. It was like the, the African model from the Black Beauties kind of like migrated over. It's a sign of the time, which is progress. We wouldn't have imagined that. We could have only imagined that. Nine of them, let alone one. Um, but I think uh, execution has been the biggest challenge and conversation everyone's having, which is lighting. And Afael, the photographer, is um, an artist who treats dark skin and white skin in a certain way. Um, the hair was challenging for some people. There were people of colour behind the scenes, so I can't critique that. Do I think, if you're going to come out with a press headline, say, nine African models for the first time on in Vogue, UK, British Vogue, whatever, a first, my question is then represent them as African women and don't hide or, or distort their, their, their tones of melanin and hair textures, etc., etc. Um, it is art. But then when I really thought about it, um, it's art that they're trying to create, but it's also for mainstream consumers, so it's kind of like, where's the, the start and the end of like how that will be seen? Um, but then when I start to think about it, it was on the, it's on the newsstands, which are predominantly filled with white women looking very happy and excited on a magazine and you've got this stunning shot of these nine African models. So when, because the images first circulated on social, and I think when you look at it on social and you look at it amongst the echo chamber that you might be in as a black or POC person, you might think, okay, this doesn't feel representative. Get that. But then when you look at it in situ of where it's meant to exist, which is on the newsstand, it actually was quite disruptive. Yeah. I would just say that, obviously, the photographer, Raphael Pavarotti, he... He's a very stylized mm. photographer. And if you look at the shots on his, amongst work, his yeah. Instagram page or his work and you get that context, it yeah. makes sense. But so much of what we see on social media now, it is that snapshot without that context behind it, without seeing no his other saw work, the spread. seeing who the yeah. photographer was and knowing about his background and, or, and his art form. And so that, it kind of detracts from it and... 
I wonder, I, well, I guess I just hope that that doesn't impact other magazines or even Vogue in the future wanting to do something like this or like work with other black photographers and do like other big shoots. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't use a black photographer. Well, he's um, he's Brazilian. He's Af- Afro. I think, yeah, I think he calls himself self um, he's like Afro Afro Brazilian. Yeah. So he was actually born in the Amazon rainforest, mm-hmm. and he kind of grew up in a small village in an indigenous territory, and then moved to London when he was 16. So I guess that's like from growing up in London from 16, it really does give him, um, I guess he wants to have like more of a voice within mm. British culture as well. And so, like, you can see it in lots of different ways. Yeah. You can see it in different ways. Listen, I'm probably one of the most opinionated people. And I... My biggest thing is now, what next? That's all. Yeah. That's my point on it. It's like, great, you've done that. Fantastic. What next? Are the brands going to pay attention? And is it going to change your perception of what it means to be African? Because me growing up as an East African girl, my par- my dad is... Um, my mum is East African, so I'm mixed race. It was considered like, you know, a negative thing. A lot of neg- ne- negative connotations to be in Africa. So I hope that has, is going to help shift things in culture, as well as other things. Yeah. Yeah. I guess my view, I'm, I don't have such a, a strong view. Mm. I guess because I am Caribbean. Mm. So my thoughts on how African women should be represented aren't. Like, it's not for me to have that opinion and so like, I'm just ready to, to listen and yeah, well, we're all from the motherland so yeah. it's fine <laughs> so as March is International Women's Month it would be great to hear some of the the women you feel we should be watching out for yeah so there's so many but I guess if I was to kind of whittle it down so um, there's this brand social strategy, strategist slash consultant who I connected with actually last year called Heta Fell. Um, she's doing some incredible things with lots of different brands and um, her main focus is to drive purpose and impact, which is obviously in the space that we work at at Liberty. Um, so she's definitely someone I would say to watch out for over the next year or so. She's doing some major things. Um, the other one would be actually someone closer to home at Liberty um, so by the way these are all POC women because obviously I believe in equity so I want to champion them um, so um, Mina Owen is a, a designer that's based in our agency Liberty and she's an incredible designer she actually started freelancing with us last year and is now with us permanently so that's amazing to get to work with her because she's so um, like sharp and smart and strategic and really understands like what we need that design to say and convey um so it's been really amazing working with her and i can only see nothing but like incredible things in what she continues to do within the space and then my final one is trina nicole who actually is someone who i featured in in her shoes she's one of the five women she is a curve model and curve catwalk founder um founder of the curve catwalk um, and she's a dancer, and she recently featured uh, December through to January in Nike's campaign, which I think, I believe was a European campaign, because I think it was in Paris as well as, like, the UK, which was called... 
something like um, something about the dance floor essentially gosh this is so bad my brain's so foggy but it was uh, about empowering everyone to kind of step onto the dance floor and own it and there was these massive like I think they were like 96 sheets of her in that Piccadilly Circus and in Paris um, of her just dancing and enjoying herself and I guess what I think is incredible about what she's doing is that she's owning who she is her body and she's taking up space and she's not trying to make herself smaller literally and metaphorically to fit into the advertising briefs and brands she's actually setting a path for normalizing showing you know models of all shapes and sizes so she's definitely someone to watch out for too and yeah those are my three women to watch out for and lastly it would be great to hear from you some I guess a tip for someone looking to find more purpose in their role like if they are working in advertising like I think one of the things I see so much from the work you do is how meaningful it is so kind of how can people try and capture that like where they are existingly or or do you think people have to I guess move to different agencies yeah I think it's I think it's hard to do it in some of the big commercial agencies but I don't want to I don't want to say give that sweeping statement because some are trying some big agencies are trying to um addy agencies are trying to create purpose um so I guess for me before moving or doing anything is really take the time to work out what you care about what drives you and what motivates you um, outside of being paid, outside of living in central London and seeing your mates on weekend, what really do you care about? And then how do you think the skills and experience that you have can help influence what you care about for the better? Um, and that's where where you should start. Listen, I, before I got the chance to do certain campaigns with Clarks or even Brandshare the mic, I... I give a certain amount of my time to mentoring young people, especially POC, and most of the time if you contact me and you ask me to mentor you, I will. I will make it work, and that's my way of having purpose and value because I know that if I invest in this young person today, give them some advice, even if it's a one-off meeting, um, it's hopefully going to influence them to have the confidence and some experience to take away to do what they really want to do and and drive them forward so I think sometimes when we think about driving passion having your passion and having purpose and making change it can seem like this big big thing and people think oh I need to do a brand share the mic version or I need to do an in her shoes or get a tit on tv and you can't all do that like honestly we can't all do that and I never imagined I would be doing that I genuinely think spending time with young POC talent and giving them confidence, giving them insight, um, because I never had that. And the industry has grown from nepotism because they've had the dads at the C-suite saying to their nephews or their sons, this is how advertising works and I'll bring you in, son, and along you go. Well, that's my version of really doing that, being like, this is advertising, this is how it works. I'll bring you in, and I actually often do if I believe in that talent. I'll bring you in. And let's see how this goes. And I love seeing them come in and be like, wow, I wanted to be part of this and now I'm part of this. I've taken something away from it. I've learned, I grow, I go on. That, that for me, is one way um, for you to drive purpose and have value. 
and for people wanting to look up some of the things that we've spoken about <laughs> today, like what are the like social handles for for Fangirl oh, yeah. and for Brand Share the Mic? So Brand, yeah, so Brand Share the Mic is Brand Share the Mic on yeah. Instagram. Yeah, on Instagram. Sorry, on Instagram we don't have any other channels. And uh, you can obviously check out Liberty, which is, uh, I believe, Liberty UK. But ooh, if you search on Instagram, LinkedIn, our website is liberty.co.uk. Um, if you want to check out Fangirl, it is uh, at fangirl underscore WRLD. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so you just need to search me, Rani Patel. If you want to connect with me, and um, I think that's it. Yeah, all the handles. I love this social plug. Thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Fayola Douglas, and you've been listening to the Ad Race podcast. A very special thank you to Rani Patel for being our first in conversation guest. In our next episode, I'll be back with Lewis Donegan Brown talking about ads that have captured our attention and have a diversity impact. You can be part of the conversation over on our socials. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The Ad Race. Thanks for joining us.